Our text this morning is Acts chapter 4, verses 13 through 31. This is God's Word. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than forty years old. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they had heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David your servant said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we come before your word because it is true, because you have given it to us to encourage us, to nourish us, to challenge us, to guide us. Father, would you speak to us this morning through your word? Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear? and hearts that understand. In Jesus' name, Amen. In the late 13th century, a man named William Wallace rose to power amongst the people in Scotland. William Wallace had become the key figure in the Scottish independence movement, a movement whereby Scotland sought to gain its independence from England. Wallace was a revolutionary and he had a unique gift of inspiring people to follow him. Most of us know the rest of his story. In 1305, Wallace was captured by the English and King Edward I in an attempt to silence him 
and thereby squashed the independence movement, had Wallace hanged, drawn, and quartered for high treason. However, as many of you know, the martyring of the movement's leader had the exact opposite effect of what King Edward was hoping for. It actually served to fuel the flames of the movement and ultimately led to inspire Robert the Bruce, who had been a coward up until this point, to rise into leadership and lead the Scots into independence. Fast forward a few hundred years, in the 1950s and 60s in this country, in the U.S. of A., a man named Martin Luther King Jr. arose out of Atlanta, Georgia. And I think we all know Dr. King's story and the invaluable role that he played in leading the civil rights movement. On April 4, 1968, in Memphis, Tennessee, James Earl Ray took Dr. King's life in an attempt to silence him and thereby squash the civil rights movement. But even in death, King could not be silenced, and the movement grew stronger in his death than in his life. Why do I share these two stories this morning about famous movements and their famous leaders? Well, this morning we're continuing in our series in the book of Acts titled, Thy Kingdom Come, God's Mission to the World. This book that we are studying, the book of Acts, is the story of the launching of the final phase of a revolutionary movement, the movement of the kingdom of God. The movement that is ushering in God's rule and reign on earth as it is in heaven. And up until this point in our text, the movement has been flourishing and gaining steam. But now, here in chapter 4, we begin to see something that will become a pattern for the rest of the book of Acts, and for, mat- and for that matter, will become a pattern for the duration of the life of the church. It's the same thing that occurred in the Scottish independence movement and in the civil rights movement. And that pattern that we see beginning to take shape is the authorities, those in power, seeking to silence the leaders of the movement and thereby squash the movement, which is exactly what is happening in our text this morning. The rulers and the elders and the scribes are seeking to nip this thing in the bud and put a stop to this movement once and for all. So that is the context of our text this morning, and as we open the Word together, I want to highlight three sections of our story. The first section I've titled, The Desire to Silence. The second section I've titled, The Inability to Silence. And the third and final section I've titled, The Response to the Silencers. The Desire to Silence, The Inability to Silence, and the Response to the Silencers. Let's begin the desire to silence. From the very beginning, literally from the very first day that Jesus opened his mouth and began to preach the gospel of the kingdom, there has always been a desire to silence this movement and the message that has been preached with it, the kingdom of God coming to earth. Yes, certainly we as Christians, especially in the West, have experienced seasons of lesser opposition. But when you look at the movement as a whole, the movement that seeks to bring God's rule and reign to the entire earth, it is safe to say that wherever the movement is preached, there is at the same time a mirrored pressure to silence the proclamation. Amen? 
And so it is no surprise that we see here that in our text this morning there is a desire to silence. Jesus has ascended into heaven and has handed down the movement to his disciples. And whether they expected it or not, the disciples are experiencing the exact same reception that Jesus received when he was on earth. And just look and just like in the times of Jesus, there is no logic whatsoever to the opposition. Look again at our text starting in verse 15. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. You see, the logical thing here would be that the authorities, after outright acknowledging that this miracle had happened, would in turn recognize the validity of the mission and get on board with the movement. That would make sense. It would be one thing if they were somehow trying to explain away the validity of the miracle, but they don't even go there. They acknowledge that the lame man has been healed, and yet still they seek to put a stop to the movement. Look at what they say in verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them, Peter and John, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They seek to silence that which they know to be real. And I want to take a moment right here to directly address the non-Christians who are here. I'd like to say again, as we've said before, I'm so glad that you are here and that you feel welcome to be with us wherever you're at in your journey of faith. And I hope that you always feel welcome here and that the messages that are preached feel as though they are just for you, just as much for you as they are for the Christians who are here. That being said, I want to speak directly to you for a moment. I want to ask you to think about whether or not you can relate to the rulers, elders, and scribes. Have you observed God at work in the lives of those around you or maybe even in your own life in a way that is hard to explain and yet you are still compelled to hold back your heart from Jesus? Has God revealed himself to you already and yet you find yourself still resisting going all in? This morning we celebrated God bringing Ben to himself. And I have to be honest, that is is my deepest desire for each one of you. I long for everyone who is here to be drawn to God and experience the riches of His mercy and grace. Could it be that now is the time for you to move from opposing the movement to becoming a part of it? One of my seminary professors, whenever he said something important, he would finish with the phrase, now you think about that. And if that's you, if that's where you're at on this journey, I challenge you to think about that. And for the rest of us, those who call themselves Christians, the major major takeaway from this section is that we need to face the reality that there will always be people who long to silence us because we come 
in the name of Jesus Christ. Even in the face of God's clear and glorious hand at work, there will always be opposition. Let me push this a little bit further. There are some people in this Southside community that we've been talking about engaging these past few weeks that are not happy about Christ Central Church being here. Probably more people than we would like to acknowledge. And the scary truth is that even if we are succeeding in the mission that we've been describing and we are empowering people to live fully, there will still be a large contingent of people in this community that are not happy about us being here and that will desire to silence us because we come in the name of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you ready for that? Were you aware that when you pledged allegiance to Christ that you were at the same time signing up for oppression and persecution? That there will always be people who desire to silence you because you come in the name of Jesus Christ. Peter and John knew this, but somehow many of us in America have lost sight of this reality that is so glaringly obvious in this story. Which leads us to our second section, which I've titled, The Inability to be Silenced. Brothers and sisters, the glorious news that is proclaimed by this text is that although opposition is certain, we are part of a movement that cannot be silenced. Amen? There is no opposition great enough to stop the coming of the kingdom of God. One day, the disparity between the heavenly throne room and the earth will be eliminated and God's will will be done completely and for all eternity throughout the entire earth. You can take that to the bank. Look with me now at the text to see how we can know for certain that this is true and that this movement cannot be silenced. There are two main reasons that our text reveals for why the rulers and elders and scribes were unable to silence the movement and beyond that why, the, why this movement will never be silenced. The first reason why the rulers, elders, and scribes were unable to silence the movement was that the testimony of the lame man was irrefutable. Daniel touched on this briefly last week, but I want to mention it again this morning. Verse 16 says, What shall we do with these men? For a notable sign has been performed through them, is, is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The beauty of a testimony is that it cannot be refuted. When I was in college, I was as lost as they come. You might even say that I was notoriously lost. I was in a fraternity and I was known amongst my friends as one who lived, who lived radically contrary to the, what the Bible said was right. And to stand out for being bad in a fraternity house is quite a feat, isn't it? I'm not proud of that. I'm, I'm just giving you the context. And towards the end of my junior year of college, my little brother invited me to join him on a church retreat. And through the incomprehensible work of the Holy Spirit, in those 48 hours, my life was transformed. And I gave my life to Jesus Christ. When I returned to my fraternity house, my life was noticeably different. And that is a gross understatement. 
And not long after I returned, I began to hold Bible studies in the fraternity house that I used to party in. And people came out of every nook and cranny to be there. And it was not because I was super eloquent, but it was because of my testimony. Because they observed with their own eyes a radically transformed life, and they could not refute that. I was the lame man in their midst, standing for the first time. Which leads us to a simple but pointed application. Brothers and sisters, what message is your life giving to a watching world? Is there evidence in your life that points to the reality of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ? Because that testimony, your life transformed, cannot be refuted. It makes me think of 1 Peter 3.15, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Are you living in such a way that causes people to notice and requires you to need to give an account of the one who has transformed your life? The second reason that our text highlights for why the rulers and elders and scribes were unable to silence the movement is because followers of Christ get their marching orders from God and not man. Look again at verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, Whatever is right in the sight of God, excuse me, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Have you ever walked up to one of your friend's kids and tried to talk to them and they fire back at you with something like this, My mommy told me never to talk to strangers. And you try to convince them that you're not a stranger, but it's really no use. They're not going to budge. And I can see how this encounter might be offensive to some, but as a parent, I get it. Because it highlights the fact that this child rightly understands whose authority takes precedence. The child knows who's in charge. We see the same thing here in our text. It's not that Peter and John are totally disregarding the authority of the council. Their words are clearly very carefully chosen. They're acknowledging the authority of the council, but at the same time, they give credence to a higher authority that they are required to submit to, even if it goes against what this earthly authority has declared. And the verbiage here is so important in verse 20. The Greek literally says, We are not able not to speak. It's not very good grammar, but I think it more accurately portrays the heart of these men than does the typical English translation. You see, the movement has so taken over their lives that they no longer have a choice in the matter. They are literally unable to be silent. The good news of Jesus Christ has so gripped their hearts that they literally do not have the ability to stay silent. So how does that translate for you and I? I think what we must take away from this is that the indestructible nature of this movement is intrinsically tied to the fact that the movement's followers are unable to not speak of it. Did you catch that? The inability of the powers that be to silence the movement 
is tied to our commitment as followers of this movement to not be silent. And although we may not be brought before a council for speaking about the resurrection of Jesus, we certainly live in a city that is incredibly post-Christian and most definitely turns its nose up to the claim of the exclusivity of the name of Jesus Christ. Which leaves us with a convicting question, doesn't it? Have you been so gripped by the gospel that like Peter and John, you cannot stay silent? Is that true for you? It's certainly not true for me much of the time, I have to confess. But before we panic and begin to fear that the movement is doomed because of our weak faith, let's look, let's look now at the third section of our story. The response to the silencers. I don't know about you, but as I read this narrative, up until this point I'm thinking, wow, these guys are studs. I don't know if I would have been so bold. I think I probably would have cowered in the face of the religious elite. I probably would have feared for my life and made it spiritual by saying that I was thinking about my family first and tucked it and ran. The picture presented of Peter and John seems unobtainable for regular old Christians like you and me. But what our text reveals is that maybe Peter and John and the rest of this ragtag group of early Christians, maybe they weren't that incredible after all. Look again with me at what Peter and John do immediately after their encounter with the council. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Isn't this awesome? Peter and John have just come back from dominating at the council. And instead of gloating over their victory, their, res their response, their immediate response, is to call their brothers and sisters together and to hit their knees. We've got an impromptu worship service that bubbles up here. Why? Because in spite of the fact that Peter and John's first engagement with opposition went so well, they know themselves. They know how fragile their faith is, and they know how much they need the Holy Spirit to empower them to carry on. Lest we forget that this is sinking in the Sea of Galilee, deny me three times, Peter. Peter knows his heart and how prone he is to wander. He's just like you and me. So they cry out to God because they know they need his strength. But what's the substance of their prayers? Look again at verse 24. Here we have recorded the very first prayer that comes off their lips when the news of tribulation comes. They say, Sovereign Lord who made heaven and earth, and the sea, and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage, and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city 
that were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. Now it's a little verbose here, which I will explain in a minute, but the essence of their prayer is this. God, in the midst of great suffering that is just beginning and is certain to get worse, we know that you are absolutely in control. We know that none of this suffering happens apart from you ordaining it. How do they know this to be true? Well, they're quoting the scriptures, Psalm 2, a prophecy that points to the suffering of the Messiah. And they... And as they're reflecting on this, they're beginning to see how this prophecy has come true in the life of Jesus. Now, I don't want to get too far off course here, but what is happening in the early church right here is huge. If you remember, just a few months prior, Luke 24, the disciples have pretty much given up because their leader is dead and they think he's gone forever. They're totally confused about God's plan of redemption and salvation. And now, Acts 4, just a few months down the road, the scriptures are beginning to come alive to them and make sense to them and even shape them. Do you see that? They're reflecting on Psalm 2 here, and the light bulb goes off, and they realize this whole psalm is about Jesus and how it was ordained before creation that he would suffer and die and rise again. And that scripture penetrates their heart and they realize that Jesus has passed down the mission to them. And so they, like Jesus, are going to be oppressed. And yet, like Jesus, they can take comfort in the fact that it is all a part of God's plan and He is in absolute control. It's a brief tangent, but I hope and pray that God's Word is doing that to you. That it is beginning to come alive to you. That you are seeing Jesus on every page, and that His Word is beginning to shape you. So how does this text shape us? Quite simply, as oppression comes, we must rest in the sovereignty of God. We must rest in the fact that God is in control and that He is good. But let's go one step further. After the early church acknowledges the sovereignty of God, what then do they ask for? If it was me, honestly, I would ask for the council members to either get fired or move away or something like that. I would ask for God to make the oppression stop. But that's not what they asked for. Look at verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your Holy Spirit, Servant, Jesus. What do they pray? They pray, God, give us the courage to stay in the fight, no matter how rough it gets. But even more specifically than that, their prayer is about their speech, isn't it? This whole text has been about the people's attempt to silence the movement. And so their prayer is, God, empower us to speak as you work. This is such an important statement for us as Christians 
these early Christians assumed that God was always at work. Brothers and sisters, do you hold that assumption to be true? Do you believe that God is at work in your neighbor's lives, in the Southside community, at your workplace, at your school? Do you believe that God is at work? Because it's out of that assumption that this bold prayer flows. Give me words to speak in the midst of your miraculous work, O Lord. I want to conclude by looking at God's response to their prayers. Verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. What does God do here? He pours out Himself, His Holy Spirit, on them so that they might continue to speak boldly and so the movement would carry on and not be silenced. The world around us is trying to silence us in this movement and we have acknowledged that our faith is small and that we are prone to wander. But brothers and sisters, the good news is that is highlighted here in verse 33 is that it's not up to us. As we cry out, God gives us Himself and His strength so that by His power, He can accomplish His mission. The pronouns are so important there. It's His power and it's His mission. We are but jars of clay, 2 Corinthians 4, earthen vessels that God chooses to fill with Himself and use for His glory. Brothers and sisters, in the year A.D. 30, a man rose to power named Jesus Christ. And he started a movement that has turned this world upside down and that has continued on for over 2,000 years. The powers that be tried to silence him as well. They nailed him to a cross in the hopes that with his death, the movement would die with him. But boy, were they wrong, weren't they? In fact, it was through His death, the death that we deserve, that He willingly gave on our behalf, through His death, that this movement took flight. And so, brothers and sisters, we cannot be silent. We must speak out in the face of opposition through the power of His Spirit. And the glorious thing is that as we speak out, He works. And while He works and transforms our lives and the lives of those around us, our testimony is proclaimed to a watching world that desperately needs to hear. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we confess that our faith is small, that we are prone to wander, and that we often cower in the face of opposition. But we trust that you, by your power, will enable us, will empower us to continue to speak as you work. So, Father, give us boldness. Do not allow us to be silent. And may we proclaim with our words and with our lives 
that you are the risen Lord and that you reign. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.